Can you imagine what it would have been like to follow Moses? Think about that for a minute. What would it have been like to have Moses as your leader? You want to talk about celebrity status? (laughs) Celebrity leadership guru, right? Surely Moses had that among the Israelites. I mean, think about it. Put yourself in that situation. There are around, at the time of the Exodus, there are around a million and a half Israelites. Now, I'm sure that Moses probably didn't know very many of them personally. They didn't really know who he was. It's not like they, they saw him on TV very often, you know, or anything like that. But you can imagine sort of the stories that went around the camp of the Israelites in Egypt, right? I mean, people talked, you know. Rumors went around. Hey, we might be getting out of here. Have you heard about this guy, Moses? Have you heard about him? I mean, Moses is brilliant. They knew Moses had the best education in Egypt because he was raised in Pharaoh's household. I mean, he, was, he knew all that Egypt had to offer intellectually. Moses had spoken with God on several occasions, face to face. In fact, people talked about that time in the wilderness when there was a burning bush and Moses went out and he had a conversation with God. Can you imagine following Moses? I mean, he was the very mouthpiece of God, of Yahweh. Moses was the guy who went in to Pharaoh, and he was the guy who had the guts to go into Pharaoh and say, you need to let God's people go. Moses was the hand of God in bringing many of the plagues on the Egyptians. God worked through him to do that. I mean, I can just picture, after maybe the fourth or fifth plague, Moses is walking along the the portion of Egypt where the Israelites live, and the crowds start to gather. He's going through the dusty streets, and people start to hear, Moses is coming this way. Moses is coming this way. And they start to gather around. They start to watch. And I can see a little group of boys following behind Moses, whispering, that's the staff that turned into a snake. And they're hoping that maybe they'll get a chance to see that staff turn into a snake as well. Pretty exciting for five and six-year-old little boys. And as if all that wasn't enough, Moses had actually led the people out of Egypt. And he'd led them to the Red Sea. And then the Egyptians had come after the people. And Moses had been the one who had raised his hands, who God had used, and the waters of the Red Sea broke apart and God detained the waters and held them up and you walked by Moses and went through the Red Sea on dry ground. Now, I don't know about you, but I get a little nervous with four or five foot waves at the beach, right? I mean, that's pretty big. I don't want to get knocked down and sucked underwater. We're talking about walking through dry land and there are towering walls of water. And it doesn't seem like anything's holding them back. But Moses is standing there with his hands spread out and God is using him and holding 
the waters back. Can you fathom that? And as if all that wasn't enough, you knew where you were headed with Moses. And this was the most exciting part. With Moses at the helm, it wasn't like there was no plan. It wasn't like you were just trying to get out of Egypt just to get away because you'd been in slavery. You knew what was going on. You'd never been there, but you'd heard about the promised land. And you were a Jew, and you'd grown up. And from the time you were a little kid, your people had been in slavery in Egypt, but around the dinner table at night, you heard the stories. You knew the promises. You knew that 400 years earlier, even longer than that, God had promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob that your people, the Israelites, were His special people and that one day He would bring you into a land that was good. And that would be your place. And He would provide that to you. And when you heard about that land, my goodness, it sounded like the Garden of Eden. I mean, it was a place of milk and honey. It was a place where God would dwell with His people. It was a place where you would be free from slavery. You would be free from your enemies. And you would have rest. After all those years in slavery to Egypt... When Moses started making things happen through the power of God, man, that was exciting. That was thrilling. You knew what the expectation was, and you knew that empowered by God, Moses was the guy to get you there. Now, it all sounds great, right? It all sounds good for that generation that Moses led out of Egypt. There's only one problem. And you heard that problem read this morning. I hope you were paying attention to Exodus chapter 17. That was the problem. The problem was the hearts of the people of Israel. The problem was they knew the promises. They knew what God had told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They knew about the promised land. They'd even seen God's power in holding the Red Sea back and bringing the plagues. They knew all of that. But when they got out into the wilderness, they failed to continue to believe in the promises of God. And because they failed to continue to believe, ultimately that generation did not enter the promised rest. I want you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3 this morning. Hebrews chapter 3. And I want to read you a few verses. These aren't the verses we're going to study necessarily, but they all fit together. Hebrews 3 and verse 16. Listen to this. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did He swear that they would not enter His rest, enter the promised land? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now, here's what I think that you and I need to consider this morning. As we hear about Moses 
as we see what happened to Israel. Hebrews chapter 3 tells us that we are in the same situation as the Israelites. Most of us in here this morning claim to be on a journey, right? We're on a journey, except our destination is not the land of Canaan. Our destination is a different place of rest. And our leader is not Moses. Our leader is better than Moses. He's a true and better Moses. Look back in Hebrews chapter 3 at verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Now go back up to chapter 1 and let me read all the way through verse 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, and if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Now, we've talked about how Moses was a particularly compelling leader. I mean, this guy is someone that you would want to follow. But notice what it says in verse 5. Hebrews 3 and verse 5. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, and here's why Moses was in place. To testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Moses was an example. Moses prepared the way for Christ. Moses was a, like a signpost. And he was pointing forward and preparing us for a greater leader who was to come. Listen to the very beginning of the book of Hebrews. Listen to this. Verse 1 of chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Moses was one of those prophets, the mouthpiece of God. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Moses was a wonderful leader, but Christ is worthy of more glory than Moses. We have heard from the one who has built all things. We have been instructed. We've received revelation from the One who has built all things. He's the maker of the house. He's not a part of the house. He's the builder and the maker of the house. God's people. Moses was faithful as a servant. Christ is faithful as a son. 
But listen, because we've heard from Christ, because we have His revelation, because we're on a particular journey, just like the Israelites were, we need to very soberly listen to what it says in Hebrews 3 and verse 6. Look with me. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And listen to this. Read this soberly. And we are his house if, indeed, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now be careful. Don't read that as saying you can lose your salvation. Because I don't think that's what that verse is getting at. But, that's a sober verse. That verse is a direct confrontation to the type of Christianity that says, pray this prayer, believe in Jesus, and then it doesn't matter what your life looks like after that. As long as you believe for a few minutes, you will be fine. This verse is a direct confrontation to that. The author of Hebrews wants us to understand that those who truly believe in Christ continue on the journey. Now, of course, they have times of struggle and difficulty, but those who believe in Christ, they continue on. They persevere in the faith. They're not like little boys who are told to clean their room and then they get distracted by baseball cards in the corner. and They don't quite finish the job. Those who truly believe in Christ stay at it. They repent. They get back on the track. They go. They continue in the journey. They persevere to the end. You see, I'm sure you know about the book of Hebrews, but the book of Hebrews was written to a group of people who were very much tempted to fall away. They knew about Christ, but they were also tempted with some of the old ways of Judaism. They were tempted to go back to the sacrifices. They were tempted to go back to the system rather than to Christ. They were tempted to turn away from Christ and turn back to Judaism. And it's because of that temptation that the book of Hebrews is filled with warnings, like you see in verse 6. I'm going to take a minute here and read some of these warnings. Hopefully these will sort of sit on us for a minute here to let us know how serious the situation is. Listen to chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. Chapter 4, verse 11, listen to this. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now listen to Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 32 and following. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, 
since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So, if I had to summarize what we're going to study today for the next few minutes on the screen, here's what I would say, all right? I tried to make it into one sort of run-on sentence here, all right? So here we go. You can jot this down if it's helpful to you. Christ is better than Moses, verses 1 through 6. We just saw that. Therefore, hear his voice. Listen to him and don't harden your hearts like the Israelites did. And a little bit of practical advice, verses 12 to 14. Here's how you can keep going. Here's some items that you're going to need for your journey. And we'll spend the bulk of our time in verses 12 through 14 this morning, hopefully with some very, very practical uh, exhortations and applications for us. But before we get there, I want you to look at verse 7, okay? I want you to notice in verse 7 the connection back to verses 1 through 6. Look how it starts. You're good Bible students. You know this. It says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. So he's connecting you back to verses 1 through 6 and probably even further back than that. Okay, he's saying what I'm about to tell you is based on the fact that Christ is better than Moses. It's based on chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, which talk about Christ and his work and his incarnation and the glory of all of that. This exhortation in verses 7 through 11 is based on all that the Hebrews tells us about who Christ is. Listen as I read these verses, 7 through 11. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, as good Bible students, you look, and hopefully verses 7 through 11 are set apart in your copy of God's Word. Why are they set apart? Well, because they're a quote from the Old Testament. It was read this morning. Verses 7 through 11 are a quote from Psalm 95, which you heard this morning, right? Now, stay with me here. Psalm 95, the author is referring back to Exodus 17, which you also heard read this morning. Think of it like this. Let's say that you're talking to a group of people about some issue going on in our country today, and you quote Ronald Reagan. He's been dead for a few years, president quite a while ago. You quote him. Well, when you quote him in his quote, he refers back to the Declaration of Independence. 
or the Constitution or something early on. And he applies that to his day, and you take it and you apply it to your day. That's what's going on here. The author of Hebrews is taking this quote and he's using it to apply to the people of his day, saying you are in the same situation. Just like the Israelites. You're on a journey. You're headed to rest. You have a great leader. Don't harden your hearts. That's what he's doing. The Jews failed to trust in God's promises. We talked about that a few minutes ago. They had all these amazing promises from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And they got into the wilderness and they, they, they dropped them. They failed to believe them. They stopped. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, and verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands today, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And listen to this. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. You can see what the problem is here. The Israelites failed to believe. For us, this promise of rest, our final destination, is not the promised land. It's not Canaan. For us, our final destination, our promise of rest, is the new earth. Dwelling with God, free from sin. That's our promise of rest. You see, for the Israelites, the entire point of the promised land was that it would be like the Garden of Eden. It would be a place for them to dwell with God. They would be free from their enemies. They would be God's special chosen people. They would be among or in His presence there. They would be free from their enemies. They would have rest there. And then they were to begin from there and spread out to the entire world and be a kingdom of priests and a light to the nations. And they failed in that. This generation of Jews that we're talking about here, they failed to enter the promised land because of their hard hearts and because of unbelief. You and I, we're on a very similar journey to them. And we have a better leader. And so we need to listen carefully to his words and to who he is, to what he says. And ultimately, that's our goal. That's the end game for all of us this morning. To listen and to finally come to our place of rest with God. If you're hazy as to what that is, that place of rest, I would encourage you this afternoon, go back to Revelation chapter 21 and 22. Do a little bit of reading and enjoy what your future looks like. You know what's interesting about Revelation 21 and 22? little paradigm shift for us here. Did you know that you and I do not finally end up in heaven? We don't go up. God comes down. We finally end up on the new earth. And it says in Revelation 21 that God dwells with His people on the new earth. And that's exciting. I was telling the college students this morning, I am so looking forward to being on the new earth free from sin, doing some of the same things we're doing now, 
enjoying God's presence fully with so many of you there. It's an amazing, amazing thing to think about, but that's the end goal. That's what we're headed toward. That's the hope and the promise of the Gospel. That's the journey we're on. And that promise is realized by those who continue in the faith. They persevere. And that's the challenge to us. So what do we do to persevere? All right? We've seen the challenge. We've laid it out. We know the situation that we're in. So what do we do to persevere? How do we make it on this journey? How do we maintain this hope of the new earth dwelling with God, free from sin? How do we maintain that? It's difficult. I mean, we're just like the Israelites. We get grouchy. It gets hot. We get complainy. We want to quit. And just like the Israelites, sometimes we think that actually God has been pretty mean to us. They thought God had brought them out of Egypt in order to kill them in the wilderness. And sometimes we think God has been pretty, pretty rude to us. How do we overcome that? How do we continue to persevere? Well, here's the the meat of the message this morning from verses 12 through 14. And I want to encourage you with, on the screen here, two items necessary to persevere on your journey to eternal rest. All right? Pretty simple here. Two items necessary to persevere in the faith, to keep on believing, to make it to the end. Now, you know how this is. If you're packing for a journey, if you're going somewhere, even if it's somewhere in town, there are certain items that you take depending on where you're going. If you're planning to go and run the Virginia 10-miler, you would pack a little bit differently than if you were going to the Golden Corral. Although you may need a heart monitor for both. When I leave the house... There are three standard items that I take with me no matter where I'm going. I take my cell phone, I take my wallet, and I take my keys every time. And I check my pockets to make sure they're there. There's certain things you need for any sort of trip you're taking. And these two items are absolutely necessary for us on our journey. All right? So, the first one here, found in verse 12, watchful urgency watchful urgency. Let me read verse 12 to you. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. We don't want to fall into the same pattern of unbelief as the Israelites. I think we've made that abundantly clear. Verses 7-11. through Verse 12 comes right on the heels of that, saying, here was the situation. You don't want to fall into the same trap of unbelief. And then he exhorts us in verse 12, here's what you need to do. Their chief problem was unbelief. They failed to keep on believing. So in order to avoid that, in order to be faithful, to continue to trust, to continue to rest in God's promises, we need this The sense of watchful urgency here. That's what he says in verse 12. This is a command right off the bat. Take care, brothers. Take care means to be vigilant. It means to be be watchful. To be alert. To be ready. 
Think of it as a police officer who knows there's a killer who lives at this particular house and he's on a stakeout across the street waiting for this guy to get home. He'd be vigilant. Think of it as a lion who's sneaking up on a zebra and his muscles are tense and he's crouching along and he's ready to spring at any moment to get his prey. Take care. There needs to be a sense of watchful urgency about us so that we persevere in the faith. The watchful urgency needs to be directed to help us prevent a heart of unbelief. To help us to prevent falling into misplaced trust. Falling away from the promises of God. And here's where our problem comes in with this. Most of us don't actually think that we are susceptible to the mistakes that the Israelites made. We really don't think that. We look at them and we think, oh, Red Sea experience, out of Egypt, the plagues. Oh my goodness, How, you guys are complaining about food in the wilderness? Seriously? And we really don't think that we are susceptible to the same mistakes that they made. We're like a, a 10-pound dog that runs out into the street and barks at the 100-pound dog, thinking he's going to take him on. We overestimate our own strength much of the time. The author of Hebrews understands this, and look what he says in verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you. This is for everybody. This is for all of you. Every individual who's sitting under the sound of my voice today, this is an exhortation for you. We're all susceptible. What stands out most to me about the Israelites is how quickly they descended into unbelief. I mean, you go back and read Exodus 14 through 17. And Exodus 15, this song that Moses sings. And then by Exodus 16, they're complaining about food. And by Exodus 17, you have the story we read this morning. And they are ready to go back to Egypt. I mean, it's amazing how quickly they descend into faithlessness. Look back at verses 9 and 10 in Hebrews 3. He says that your fathers put me to the test, saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation. They always go astray in their heart. They've not known my ways. What's amazing about that is they saw God's works, but they didn't know His ways. They saw what He was able to do, but it wasn't mixed with faith. So they didn't grasp God's ways. They didn't grasp His character and His goodness and who He was. They weren't actively trusting in God. They allowed their heart to slip into this experience of disbelief and of doubt and failing to trust in the promises of God. In reality, being faithless, being like the Israelites... It's not, it's not just passive. You don't just sort of slide into it. It's very, very active. Look what it says in verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Unbelief is an active thing. It's trying to get you to doubt the promises of God. It's quite aggressive in coming after us. It's always a temptation for us. 
And so as you read verse 12, I hope you're, you're feeling the urgency here. There's a watchful urgency for the journey that we're on. And I hope you're feeling that urgency. I hope you're feeling the need to keep watch for unbelief, to keep yourself connected to the promises of God. But you're probably thinking, okay, I I hear you, watchful urgency. What does that look like? Practically, how do I do that? Good news. Verses 13 and 14 will be helpful to us in that, all right? What do we need? Mutual exhortation. And I would say this is probably the heart of what I want to communicate this morning to you. Mutual exhortation. What items do you need for your journey of faith? You need watchful urgency, but you also need mutual exhortation. Let me read verses 13 and 14. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. One of the most fascinating things about traveling overseas is experiencing another culture. And it's always interesting to sort of pick up on some of the, the assumptions that that are the foundation for the way other cultures operate. Do you know what I'm talking about here? There are just certain things that people don't overtly state that are assumptions that they sort of go by and that guide life. It's, it's like the framing in a house. You don't see the framing in the house. You know, you don't walk into somebody's house and ask to see the framing, but the framing provides the support and it gives shape to the house. Well, there are certain cultural assumptions that every culture has. In Eastern cultures, one of the assumptions that is very foundational to the way that they operate and the way they do life is that your dignity and your worth as a a person is defined by how well you participate in your family. Your dignity and worth is defined by how you participate in the community in the city you live in, or in the family that that you're born into, that you're a part of. In those cultures, dignity and worth is defined by the group. Well, how is your worth and dignity defined in American culture? I think in American culture, our image of dignity, our image of someone really being a, a good person is defined by someone who stands in the face of family expectations, who stands in the face of maybe even cultural expectations, and stays true to his or her heart. In other words, we tend to place dignity and worth on the individual and not on the family unit or on the the group or the community as a whole. You hear this all the time. Follow your heart, right? I mean, that's a generally accepted cliché in our culture. People say that. Be true to yourself, right? I mean, that's, that's how our culture thinks that you determine dignity and worth. It's the maverick, right? The American pioneer who goes out into the wilderness and, and lives on his own and conquers, you know, the wild. That's how we define real personhood and dignity. 
Now, don't get me wrong. There are some valuable things about being able to stand on your principles. There's some really valuable things. But I think in the church, that sort of individual mindset has gotten into our DNA. It seeps in day after day. And we start to think that I need to do this journey as an individual. I will demonstrate my dignity and my worth if I can make it on this journey as the Lone Ranger, by myself. Let me say this as plainly as possible. To make it on this journey, we need each other. We all need each other. To every person in here, we need each other. We need the body. We need the church. Look at the exhortation here in verse 13. Here's the specific command. Exhort one another every day. Now there are three things that this exhortation looks like. And I'm going to give those to you really quickly. All right. First of all, this exhortation to one another is consistent. This is not something that happens once a week. Okay? It's not something that can take place during this gathering. This is not what this is talking about. This is not talking about five minutes before we start church. Listen, you could come to Sunday morning, Sunday night, and prayer meeting on Wednesday night and not fulfill this command. You could show up, walk in, sing, listen to the Word preached, leave and you would not be taking this item necessary for your journey with you. This is talking about personal interaction with other believers. It, I mean, it says, every day, consistently, this is the pattern of life for the believer. Because there's a sense of urgency to this journey that we're on. This is urgent Because, look what he says, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. We are not to the end of our journey yet. The only time we have is right now, today. And so there's a sense of, I have to get together with other people. I need to exhort others. I need others to exhort me. I need them so that I can make it on this journey. So that I can persevere and continue to believe the promises of God. The next thing that describes this exhortation is that it is not only consistent, but it is truthful. Truthful. And this is the heart of this command. Here's what I don't want you to do this morning. All right? I don't want you to read the word encouragement or exhortation or whatever it says in your translation. And I don't want you to think that you need to go up to somebody and pat them on the back and say, hey man, you can make it. You can do this. It's fine if you want to do that, but that's not what this is talking about. That's not the exhortation that is given here. You can understand what exhortation really is when you see what it is you're trying to defeat with the exhortation. So what is it? Look at verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So your exhortation is geared toward keeping people from believing the lies of sin. It's truthful. It's geared toward keeping people from believing the lies of sin. Think of it this way. 
every single time you are tempted to sin, whether in thought or in deed or in attitude, every single time, sin is lying to you. It's telling you a lie. It's telling you life will be better if you think this way, if you give in to this, if you do this. You will be more satisfied if you operate as I want you to operate. Sin is deceitful. It's trying to trip us up. It never tells you the truth. Ever. At all. Zero times will sin tell you the truth. It's deceitful. And over time, here's the scary part. Over time, as we give in to temptation, it becomes easier to believe the lies. It's like water going through a ditch. And the ditch gets deeper and it gets broader. And the water flows more naturally through the ditch. And when we give in to temptation, it's like letting the water in and it just makes the ditch deeper and wider and it becomes easier every single time we give in to it. It's deceitful. It lies to us. So if the battle against sin, if the battle for faithfulness is to expose the lies of sin, then we need the truth of God's Word. It's lies versus truth. I mean, that is your sanctification. If you want to boil it down, that's what it is. Exposing the lies of sin, believing the truths of the gospel. So here's what this looks like. You're struggling with anxiety. You go to a friend of yours. They help you to expose the lies that anxiety is telling you. And then they speak the truth into your life. If you're a teenager and you're struggling with the way God has made you, go to somebody. Talk to them. Let them expose the lies of, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not athletic enough, whatever it may be. Let them expose the lies of sin and speak the truth into your life. We need the truth in specific circumstances, but we also need, generally, to talk with one another about the truth. Look back up in chapter 3 and verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. This is the heart of what it means to exhort one another. We need to help one another consider Christ. If we're going to make it on this journey, if we're going to continue to believe, we have to consider Christ. We have to think about Him. He is the full and final revelation of God that we learned about in chapter 1. He's God's true Word. He proclaims to us the goodness and justice of God. He is the light of the world that pierces through the darkness brought on by sin into our souls. He's the living water that satisfies so we no longer have to drink from the broken cisterns of this world. He's the bread of life so we can savor a full banquet at God's table rather than the meager meal served by sin. He's the good shepherd so we can relax in His care as He leads us to good pasture. He is the true rest of the people of God so that we can cease from our labors and enjoy His work. He is the great high priest who enters the Holy of Holies and stands before God on our behalf. He is the true Passover lamb who pours out His blood for us 
so we can be saved from the wrath of God. He's the resurrection and the life so that our greatest enemy, death, will ultimately be defeated. Consider Christ. Exhort one another to consider Christ every single day. Lastly, our exhortation needs to be consistent, it needs to be truthful, and it needs to be hopeful. Look at verse 14. For we've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The author here, I think, is encouraging us that we need one another and we need to persevere. We do that by mutual exhortation and ultimately the end is that we come to this place of rest and we share in Christ together. Here he holds out the hope of our final destination. And we so desperately need one another to make it to this destination. So maybe this morning, this is a little bit intimidating to you. Maybe you're feeling the urgency, the weightiness of this journey that we're on together. Maybe you're thinking, I can't make it. I can't do this. I'm not strong enough. I'm not good enough. And that's right. (laughs) None of us are. But listen to what the end of Hebrews chapter 4 says to us as we go along this journey. Verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He has everything we need. So we must constantly exhort one another to go to the fountain, to go to the high priest, and to rest and to trust his work as we go along this journey. Let's pray together. Father, we are weak. We don't always realize that. Our pride keeps us from the recognition of it, but we are weak, Lord. We can't make it on this journey. We can't do it. We can't be watchful enough. We can't exhort one another enough, Father. But what we can do is we can trust and we can rest in your grace. We can consider Christ. We can exhort one another to look to him to take the attention off of self and to just enjoy the work that you have done, Lord. We're so thankful for Christ. And even this morning as we talk this through and as we look at the book of Hebrews, help us to remember that Jesus Christ is better. Better than anything else. Anything in the Old Testament, Lord. Anything in our lives. He's sufficient. He's complete. He is everything we need. Just to consider that and to remember that and give us the strength to help one another along this journey. Thank you, Lord, and we love you. In Christ's name we pray.